the splendors and miseries of an old Bailey hack. Some cases of Horace Rumpo, barrister at law, as told to and written down by John Mortimer, with Morris Denham as Rumpo and Margot Boyd as Hilda. Rumpo and the gentle art of blackmail. I will do such things, what they are, yet I know not, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. <laughs> that vague menace of King Lear, of course, was absolutely hopeless as a bit of blackmail. The good blackmailer utters a threat which is short, clear and perfectly possible. She who must be obeyed had that lesson to learn over the matter of the new chair covers. Rumpel? Hmm? We need new chair covers. Um, I've got a hurry breakfast, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm catching a train to Oxford. When we went to the Featherstone's sherry party, I was admiring their chintz chair covers. So jolly and spring-like, I told Marigold Featherstone. City of dreaming spires. Oh, no. I'm going there to study a rather jolly and spring-like little case of blackmail. We cannot invite the Featherstones to dine here until we've got new chair covers, Rumpole. Our old chair covers would simply let us down. Oh, I don't know. They've held me up for a good many years. Really, Rumpel. But the charge is blackmail, demanding money with menaces within the sacred precincts of St. Joseph's College. Oh. My old college, Hilda. Rumpel, I'm giving you fair warning. If you don't give me the money for new chair covers to brighten up our living room, I'll... I'll... What'll you do, Hilda? I, I haven't thought yet. But I, I'll take a most serious view, I promise you that. <laughs> you see what I mean. She and old King Lear had a lot to learn in the gentle art of blackmail. No doubt they could have profited by lessons from the client I was about to see languishing in Oxford prison. Oxford? How long was it since I'd taken the train from Paddington to go up to St. Joseph's for the study of law? A subject which, I may say, never interested me greatly, either then or now. Blood stains and handwriting, certainly. The art of cross-examination, of course. Winning a jury, fascinating, but law. The only honourable way to pass a law exam is to make a few notes on your cuff and study them during frequent visits to the box. Oxford. And the eye travels down to Oxford's towers. Marvellous view you get of coal leaps round the canal. It's never Horace Rumpole. Huh? Well, it is sometimes. You remember me, don't you, Rumpole? P.J. Fosdyke. Hmm? Fozzie Fosdyke. Fozzie. We grew up at St. Joseph's together. In the year dot. Rumpole. What are you doing in Oxford? Oh, a bit of legal business. You have to hurry back. Hmm? Come for a drink at the old call. Or something to eat. We dine early. Oh. Mr. Rumpole. I'm the fellow there now, you know. Tutor in modern history. I'm Sue Galton, Mr. Rumpole. Oh, yes? From your instructing solicitors in the Vernon case. Ah. Oh, uh, this is P.J. Fosdyke. <laughs> we were up at Oxford together in the year dot. Miss Sue... Galton. Very nice, too. Miss Galton must brighten up your work considerably, Rumpole. Well, come on, Mr. Rumpole. I've got a taxi to take you to the prison. Uh, just to recap, Miss Galton, I have, of course, read the papers. Peter Vernon worked as a gardener and 
general handyman at St. Joseph's. Mm. Although he got a couple of A-levels and he's pretty bright, he just couldn't find a job to suit him. Well, it can't be a bad job, though, mowing the croaky lawn, planting out snapdragons. Mm. Peter quite enjoyed it. Peter? Was this just contemporary solicitor's talk, or did it, I wonder, show a higher degree of intimacy with the accused? Peter was really happy at St. Joseph's until the business with Sir Alan started. Ah, I know. Sir Alan Tufnell, Professor of Moral Philosophy. Always ready and willing when they need a brain for the telly or any questions. Been principal of St. Joseph's, so far as I can remember, for the past five years. Yes, yes, that's him. Mr. Rumpel, before we get to the prison, there's something I ought to tell you. Hmm. Peter's not in the least gay. Well, I'm sure he isn't. Not stuck in Oxford jail for the past six months on a nasty charge of blackmail. <laughs> no, 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 you don't understand. Well, tell me. Peter's just not queer. He's not homosexual. You see, I can guarantee that. Personally. Can you, Miss Gold? Yes. Peter's my boyfriend. We're going to be married when you get him off. Here we are at the prison. This, I must say, was an added complication. If I lost the case, as from a brief glance at the paper seemed a highly probable result, I shouldn't only have an aggrieved client, but a broken-hearted solicitor on my hands. Moreover, I didn't see how I could question the fiancé without some embarrassment. Now, what was alleged against him was that he'd had a considerably more than friendly relationship with Sir Alan. He then extracted various cheques, sums of cash, and a handsome engraved gold cigarette case from Sir Alan as a price of not publishing the full and passionate details in the University Gazette. Uh, Peter Vernon. Hello, Mr Rumpel. It's kind of you to come all this way. I know you're busy. I got you some cigarettes, Peter. Oh, thanks, Sue. Now, how are things in the Oxford, Nick? Well, it's not a senior common room at St Joseph's. But it's not so bad, I suppose. Mm. There's one or two decent screws, blokes you can talk to. You haven't been worrying, have you, Sue? What do you think? Well, you're not to worry. We'll be all right. Now we've got Mr. Rumpole. Sue told me you were marvellous at getting criminals off. Really? Well, she's too kind. Well, you may have a bit more trouble with me. I don't know. That's why. Well, I suppose my problem is I'm not a criminal. I looked at Peter Vernon. He was, I suppose, about 21 years old. To say he was a good-looking boy is an understatement. You can see faces like his on Greek statues and Florentine paintings. He had a look of trust and vague uncertainty. But what was the most disturbing thing from the point of view of an old hack advocate about to undertake his defence? He looked innocent. I started a difficult interview cautiously. Well, now, Peter, how long did you work at St. Joseph's? About six months. Uh, you met Sir Alan soon after you started? Yes. He came up to me in the garden one afternoon. He was very charming. Mm. Do you remember what he said? Well, I do, as a matter of fact. He said... Such was that happy garden state when man first walked without a mate. Uh, Andrew Marble. And I said, after a place so pure and sweet, what other help could yet be meet? He seemed surprised I knew the poem. And then? He used to come out and see me, if I was alone in the garden. Sometimes he'd bring me a glass of sherry or a packet of fags. We'd talk. About? All sorts of things. Music. Peter loves music. And opera. He told me opera was another world. I'd never seen one. <laughs> but he said I was like Siegfried. Wagner's Siegfried. Then one day he asked me if I'd like to come out to London to go to Covent Garden with him. We had dinner at his club. Where? Somewhere in St James's. The food was terrible. You'd do better off in a bistro in Oxford. <laughs> then we went off to Covent Garden. Did you come back to Oxford that night? Sir Alan drove me back, yes. 
And then... My instructing solicitor was looking at him and holding up breath. I've got a room near the station. He dropped me off there and then, well, I suppose he drove back to the college. And after that? We went to dinner in London once or twice. Oh, and I had tea with him in his rooms a few times. And that's all? Yes, that's all. Oh, what's the time? Oh, damn. Miss, Miss Galton, I meant to phone my clerk. You can do that from the office when we get back. No, you'll be gone then, I'm afraid. Look, you couldn't ask them if you could make a call to the gate, could you? Just ring my chambers and say I'll be free for the breathalyzer case at Chelmsford tomorrow. There, there, there's a good girl. Oh, do you want 10 I think we can stand you a phone call if you're going to get Peter off. Uh, our officer, this young lady, wants to make a phone call. Oh, right, sir. If you'd like to follow me, miss. I can't get you off, you know, unless you tell the truth. Pity. Yes, it's a pity. And if you don't tell the truth about you and Sal, and the jury will never believe you about the blackmail. I don't want Sue to know. Well, she'll have to hear it sometime. Look, what do you think? Would Miss Galton rather have a free man who's had a few queer experiences or wait for four years for a convicted blackmailer? Anyway, there's no defence unless you did it. Now, you did it and he gave you presents for it. Isn't that the story? It happened that first night, after Siegfried. I suppose I did it out of politeness. You know, the way you're taught to say thank you after a children's party. You didn't care for him. Oh, it wasn't him at all. It was his whole world. The way he talked and the music he played me. And even that freezing old club with the Regency paintings and the rotten food. I was grateful to him for showing me all that. The rest didn't seem terribly important. He gave you money? Yes. Checks a few times. He must have been mad to do that, mustn't he? Yes, and you were mad to pay them into your bank account. You were both doing your best to help the prosecution. You were under 21 there, weren't you? Yes, 20 and a bit. Did it occur to you it was a crime? Was it? Yes, it's something you're not allowed to do until you're 21 by the wisdom of Parliament. Why did you keep the money? I just kept it. And the cigarette case? Yes, that was the last thing he gave me. I kept it all because... Well, I knew Sue and I were going to get married. We had a lot to save up for. It was, I suppose, an unusual sort of way to furnish a bottom drawer, but oddly enough, he made it sound completely natural. I phoned you, Chambers. They didn't seem to think you had a case tomorrow. Oh, didn't they? How strange. Well, I'm always the last to hear. Now, I must go and take a look at my old college. Thank you for coming to see me, Mr. Rumpole. I'll give you a piece of advice which would be fatal to most of my clients. For God's sake, tell the truth. If there are any lies to be told, leave them to the professor of moral philosophy. He might well be better at it. Fosdyke, I thought we were going to have a quiet drink in your rooms. I really can't dine at your high table. It'll be most embarrassing. Of course you can. The food's not bad at all. <coughs> ah, you'd like to meet Humphrey Grice. Mm. He's our senior law tutor. Uh, this is my friend Rumpole, Humphrey. How do you do? It seems he's known as Rumpole of the Old Bailey. Really? How amusing. Yeah. Oh, and this is our principal, Sir Alan Tufnell, my friend Rumpole of the Old Bailey. How are you, Rumpole? How do you do? I hope you're dining with us. 
gull's eggs tonight, isn't it, Humphrey? We usually have gull's eggs on the first Thursday in Lent, and we make ourselves stop at three. Yes, Sir Alan, um, could I have a word? Fasting is a state of mind. I do believe that. Yes, what is it, Humphrey? Well, Fosdyke invited me to dinner, but... I should tell you that I'm appearing for young Peter Vernon on a blackmail charge. Oh, good. Do your best for him, won't you? I feel genuinely sorry for the lad. But it's no doubt embarrassing for you, Sir Alan, having me here. Embarrassing? Why should it be? We shall be drinking some rather seductive sancerre with the eggs I was telling you about. Oh, of course, Rumpo. We won't talk shop. For the first, and I hope the last time, I sat down to dine by the major prosecution witness a week or two before a criminal trial... But Sir Alan was consistently charming to everyone. When we retired to the senior common room, the talk was brought round by Grice to what I thought was an uncomfortable subject. Interesting piece on Sir Charles Dilk in historical, Fosdyke. Mm. Tell me, do you think Dilk might have made a great liberal prime minister if he hadn't been caught out by his sexual indiscretions? <sighs> Dilk's was an extraordinary talent. You know, Keir Hardy invited him to lead the Independent Labour Party. Humphrey Grice probably finds that far more shocking than hopping into bed with a couple of ladies at once. <laughs> what is a scandal, if I may ask the rhetorical question? A scandal is a secret that gets found out. It's a subject for lies and cover-ups. If you don't lie, if you don't try and conceal, then there's no scandal. Take Watergate. Oh, really, Principal, do we have to? A tragedy, in my opinion. Those two complacent little scribblers got rid of America's only competent president. Exactly. Now, who'd have given tuppence about Watergate if Nixon had told the truth about it? What was it? Trivial bit of housebreaking. Almost a student peck. It became a scandal because of the lies. The moral is, if you want to kill a scandal, tell the truth. Is that what you intend to do, Principal? Since you have the bad taste to ask the question, Humphrey, after dinner and in the presence of a guest, the answer is unquestionably yes. As he said this, the principal gave me a glowing smile and an invitation to put up for the night in a college guest room. The next morning, I had a leisurely breakfast with Fosdyke and then wandered through the town to land up breathing in the dust and powdered leather of a second-hand bookshop. There, I propped myself up to read a tattered volume of memories by some dead legal hack recalling life on the old southeastern circuit, when no case seemed to last more than a day, and most ended with the black cap at twilight. You do actually read books, then. Your life oh. isn't entirely practical. It was Humphrey Grice, the academic lawyer, crept out of his lair on a shopping spree. He gave me a wintry smile. I say, a bit of cheek or turning up to dinner with the principal... Fosdyke tells me you're defending young Vernon. Well, I'm afraid I got trapped. It was most embarrassing. Not at all. Tufnell needs reminding. The case isn't far off. Grice smiled in a way I can only describe as ghoulish. He seemed to relish the idea of my playing Banquo's ghost at Sir Alan's dinner table. I don't think he realises just how serious it is. Or for my client? Oh, no. For the principal's career. There's no possible doubt, you know, that he's guilty. My client? Sir Alan Tufnell. The relationship was definitely physical. Oh, yes. James, the porter, distinctly saw the boy Vernon coming out of the principal's lodgings at dawn. Well, I came out of Founders Buildings, which houses P.J. Fosdyke, but I hope no one thinks that relationship is definitely physical. I just thought that someone should see that the truth came out of the trial. 
What do you think, Rumpel? I think, if I may say so, Grice, that your interest in the law doesn't appear to be entirely academic. Waiting on the station on my way back to London, I telephone Miss Galton. Oh, just remind me, what was the date Sir Alan went to the police and complained of Vernon blackmailing him? November the 1st, last year. And what are the dates on the cheques? August, September, and one in October. Last year? Yes. All before the principal went to the police? Before, yes. Ah. Uh, listen, I want you to find out where he bought the gold cigarette case. Get a photograph of it or something. Go round Oxford Jewellers. But when I came back to the trial a couple of weeks later, Miss Colton had drawn a blank at the Oxford Jewellers. I sent her up to London. I had an idea that Sir Alan might have bought the case when he stayed at his club in St James's. It seemed a forlorn hope, and she hadn't returned the next morning when I sat gloomily in court, listening to my learned friend for the Crown opening the prosecution case. Members of the jury... <laughs> We may be able to forgive some forms of criminal activity, but not blackmail, which is the meanest form of crime. It's a slow poison which feeds on its victims' fears. And, of course, members of the jury, the higher position a man reaches in his public life, the more he's got to lose. And no one is in a more vulnerable position than the distinguished head of a great Oxford college. A man like Sir Alan Tufnell, whom you probably all know well from your television screens. Bernard Crompton was my contemporary, a member of the old Oxford circuit. He was a dangerous prosecutor. He knew how to speak to the jury as if he was one of them. But the mere fact that blackmail is a crime which we all hate and despise mustn't make you more ready to assume that this young man, Peter Vernon, is guilty. If you are in any doubt about it at the end of the day, say, not guilty. He was also the most dangerous sort of prosecutor. He was fair. That was the way he got convictions. <clears throat> oh, Miss Galton, any luck? Yes, I found the jeweller finally. Of in the Burlington Arcade. I've been upstairs to get a witness summons. Oh, tell me the date he bought it, for God's sake. She told me. I will now call Sir Alan Tufnell. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence which I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Sir Alan, you understand that in blackmail cases the victim can remain anonymous and merely be referred to as Mr X. I will direct the reporters in court to refer to you in that way. My Lord, I am extremely grateful. I bet you are. No chance of poor old Peter Vernon being called Mr. X, however. Sir Alan, you are the principal of St. Joseph's College. I am. You are the Oxford Professor of Moral Philosophy and a Fellow of the Royal Society and a Companion of Honour. Yes, I am. When did you get to know the defendant, Vernon? About 18 months ago, my lord, when he came to us as an undergardener and general handyman. Did you have any relationship with him other than as a college servant? I think he became a friend. I hope all the college servants are my friends. Did you offer him any particular form of friendship? I found that he was a very intelligent young man, with genuine, if unformed, musical tastes. He had done well at school, but his parents had opposed him going on to higher education. I thought he might be feeling jealous of the young men of his age who were enjoying academic life at St. Joseph's. Hmm. So? So I invited him to my rooms. 
We talked. About what? About music. About philosophy. I tried to have the sort of discussion with him that I would normally have with an undergraduate. Did he ever stay the night in your lodgings? Once or twice, when we were talking late. I put him up in my spare bedroom. And did you go to London together? Again, I think it was once or twice. I took him to Covent Garden and dinner at my club. Did your friendship continue happily? I'm afraid it didn't. What happened? One day, Peter Vernon came to me in the garden and said that if I didn't give him money, he would write round to all my colleagues at St. Joseph's and tell them that we had been sleeping together. And had you? Certainly not. How did you react? I'm afraid, foolishly. I knew I was innocent of what he was suggesting, but I was afraid of the scandal. So you gave him the cheques which we have seen? Yes, and sometimes cash. Amounting to some £600, and the gold cigarette case, which was how much? I think that was 500 my lord. And then? Then I began to think about it, and realised that if I went on paying Vernon, he would blackmail me forever. I decided that I must face up to the possibility of scandal and go to the police. I'm sure we all realise that required considerable courage, Sir Alan. Oh, come on, Judge. You're going to give him his VC now or later? Yes. Thank you, Sir Alan. Uh, just wait there, will you, in case my learned friend has any questions? Uh, just a few. Uh, Sir Alan Tufnell. Yes, Mr Rumpel. In your book, Morality and Modern Man, you said something to this effect. Modern man will do good and tell the truth for its own sake, and not out of fear or respect for a possibly non-existent deity. Ah, hmm. I did, yes. And yet you began your evidence by swearing on the Bible. Yes. Why didn't you affirm, if you don't believe? Mr. Rumpel, I said God was possibly non-existent. That means I have to recognise that he possibly exists. And on that outside chance, you took the oath as you did. Mr. Rumpole, are you criticising Sir Alan for taking the oath in the usual fashion? No, oh, no, my lord. I am criticising Sir Alan for trying to present himself to this jury as something other than he is. You're lying about yourself, are you not? Perhaps you could make clear what you mean. The truth is that you and this young man were lovers. No. And as a lover will, you gave him presents from time to time. Is that what they were? Oh, certainly that's what they were. The sort of expensive presents another man might give his mistress. I have no idea what a man might give to his mistress. I expect you haven't. You uh, never married, Alan. No. I have been denied that happiness. Well, <laughs> I suppose some of us might say you've been exceptionally lucky. So you have no one else to give presents to? It's true that I have no immediate family. No one but young Peter Vernon. I have already told the court why I gave him that money. Because you were afraid of being accused of something you hadn't done? Exactly. And you knew that Mr Humphrey Grice, your senior tutor in academic law, would use any scandal to have you dismissed as principal because he coveted your place? That was something I did have in mind, yes. And you were particularly fearful because you knew the charge was true? No. Sir Alan, we've heard my learned friend in his opening speech tell us the date when you went to the police to make this charge of alleged blackmail. Yes. It was November the 1st, was it not, of last year? I believe so, yes. Oh, you can take the date from me. The police did nothing for well over a month. No, they were making inquiries at Vernon's bank, for instance. Exactly so. And during that time, you gave Vernon this gold cigarette case. No. No? I'm... Sure. 
That can't be right. It can't be right if you're telling the truth, can it? You wouldn't decide to put an end to the blackmailing by complaining to the police and then spend £500 on a gold cigarette case for Peter Vernon. No, certainly not. Oh, but you see, that's exactly what you did, Sir Alan. I will be calling evidence to prove that you bought this case on the 5th of December last year at a jeweller's in Burlington Arcade near your club and gave it to Peter Vernon as a Christmas present. What date was that, Mr Rumpole? The 5th of December, my lord. Why should I do that, Mr Rumpole? I'll tell you, Sir Alan. Because you wanted to frame Peter Vernon on a blackmail charge. Frame him? Oh, yes. You wanted to make sure that Peter Vernon wasn't going to be believed if he ever told the truth. You knew that Grice was onto your trail like an old bloodhound. And you also knew Peter was planning to get married to a young lady solicitor. You didn't know him very well, did you? You thought he'd start talking about your nights at the opera. But I'd already given him the checks. Presents? Presents that could be used to get Peter Vernon arrested and have him convicted as a criminal whom no one could believe. Oh, you might have got away with it, Alan, if you hadn't wanted to add one final bit of evidence. The gold cigarette case that you bought him in London after you'd gone to the police. Members of the jury. Blackmail, and here I agree with every word that my learned friend Mr Bernard Crompton said to you on behalf of the Crown, is really one of the meanest forms of crime. And blackmail, when it means planting false evidence on an innocent man, so that you can have him convicted of an offence that he has never committed, so that you can gain the advantage of being safe from scandal, must be the meanest crime of all. Who was the blackmailer in this case, members of the jury? Was it the young man in the dock? Or the older man in the witness box? Who is lying about whom? Ask yourself that question and remember that the answer is a gold cigarette case bought to bolster up a false charge and bought after Sir Alan had complained to the police. I saw them only for a moment when the case was over. Peter Vernon came out blinking into the sunlight, surprised to be free. And Sue was surprised only that he'd never told her. They went away, I suppose, to flog the cigarette case and buy wallpaper, saucepan scours, lino tiles, acres of vim and other household and domestic articles. And then I saw Sir Alan getting into a taxi. He smiled goodbye at me, I thought very charmingly. He resigned a little while after as principal of St Joseph's College, a job Humphrey Grice doesn't do as well. And they say the food at high table has deteriorated. Sir Alan has just presented a hugely successful teleseries on Man, the Moral Animal. I caught the train back to London, and came, as most men deem, to little good, but came to Oxford and my friends no more. Hilda, what's this? It's an estimate, Rumpel, for redecorating the flat. Well, why should we want the flat redecorated? Well, to brighten it up, of course. If you'd agreed to buy new chair covers, it wouldn't be necessary. 
Bat was a decent bit of blackmail, clear and open and, of course, quite effective. All right, then, Hilda. Chair covers it is. That was Morris Denham as Rumpo and Margot Boyd as Hilda in The Gentle Art of Blackmail. The judge was played by Brian Sanders, Bernard Crompton, Geoffrey Bailden, Sue Galton, Emily Richard, Sir Alan Tufnell, Trevor Baxter, Humphrey Grice, Gerald Cross, P.J. Fosdyke, Alan Dudley, and Peter Vernon, Nigel Greaves. Rumpole and The Gentle Art of Blackmail was written by John Mortimer and directed by Ian Cottrell. <laughs>